if the central government pays for everything, what's to stop local politicians from building giant baseball stadiums named after themselves? If you look at the Green New Deal, you want to eliminate carbon usage. That is a big change, and you could argue as big a change as what was going on in World War II. Some MMTers say maybe we shouldn't be using interest rates to regulate the economy so we can get rid of bonds. And if that happens, well, I guess I'll need a new domain name. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. MMT. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese, and I've brought my guest, Brian Romanchuk of Bond Economics. My perception of Brian, before I let him introduce himself here momentarily, Brian is the deepest, wonkiest writer I have ever read when it comes to the background, the theoretical framework of modern monetary theory and just economics and macro as a whole. I've witnessed Brian dress down people in a way that I would have never imagined could be a dress down, but it is the most technically precise description of a given scenario. And so I had to ask Brian to come join us because most of the time we deal in the political economy. We are definitely talking MMT, but we oftentimes stray into the programmatic, you know, what is possible within the political environment kind of scenario. Brian deals in the theoretical. So with that, Brian, did I give you justice there? I mean, how would you describe yourself? Tell us about yourself. Hi there. I think that's a fair description. I mean, my background, I mean, I was originally an engineer, but I moved into control systems theory, which is a branch of applied mathematics. And I did a doctorate in that, and I was interested in the theory end of things. And I drifted out of academia and ended up working in finance. And starting in 2013, I sort of struck off on my own as a consultant, and I'm writing on economics.com, as well as I have a few short books out. They're not 100,000-word tomes. They're more like extended reports, and I've, I've produced a few of those. And I worked in fixed income, and so we were interested in what happens with yield curves, what happens with inflation, but it was technical. I mean, if you're in the bond market, you're not advocating policies. You're seeing what the policies do. And I came in with no economics background, and so I had to learn on the job. And well, I picked up a lot from Hyman Minsky, but the met Warren Mosler uh, via his firm, and I really got into MMT and it helped clarify things. I mean, most of it, from what I was interested in, was similar to things that I knew, but I'd never thought about carefully 
and there was no other source that explained it properly, I'd figured things out on my own, just looking at data and said, okay, yeah, this fits what I already know. And that's why I was attracted to it. It's just amazing. I read some of the description. You, you've jumped into the foray here recently, obviously with MMT exploding onto the scene. We've got, you know, illuminaries like our luminaries, I should say, I want to call them Illuminatis, <laughs> luminaries like uh, Paul Krugman who have come out of the woodworks and Jared Bernstein and a host. I mean, everybody who was somebody, Larry Summers, you name it, coming out, taking a pot shot at the new kids on the block who aren't so new, actually. And they repeatedly misrepresent the academic, theoretical framework, or just the basic premises of modern monetary theory. And you basically said, hey, man, I, you know, let me take a crack at this. And you masterfully dress these folks down. Can you explain largely what you believe MMT is and what the pushback from the mainstream is? Why is this framework getting so much hate, so to speak? I mean, one thing to keep in mind, I mean, I'm coming this as a theoretician, MMT fits within post-Keynesian economics, uh, which was pushed basically out of the Ivy League uh, universities, top journals by the you know, mainstream, neoclassicals, and, you know, the the post-Keynesians may have been hard to work with, but, you know, it's, I'm ex-academic, and, you know, the treatments, the way they, would, they wrote them out of history is uh, disconcerting. I mean, it's that's not the way academia is supposed to work. So the issue with the post-Keynesians is that they didn't agree with the mainstream, and they didn't agree with themselves. And so there's a lot of factions within post-Keynesian economics, and it was hard to sort of pick up what's going on. And there's been attempts, like Mark Lavoie, professor, wrote textbook on post-Keynesian economics, trying to say, yes, there is a common strand. But what MMT did was, we're going to create a single coherent view hacked out of post-Keynesian economics. And it's developed. But it fits in within that framework. And for me, my difficulty with MMT is how do I distinguish what's MMT versus post-Keynesian thought? And because I'm a, a little bit more familiar with the post-Keynesian textbooks. You know, for me, I don't really care. I mean, uh, MMT is a branch of post-Keynesian economics. I'm not too worried where we draw that line. But unfortunately, academic politics uh, means, you know, presence. People worry about where you draw these lines, and so there's a lot of arguing. But when it's, you know, versus the mainstream, the post-Keynesians have developed, like, a completely parallel, you know, worldview. Basically a rejection of most of what neoclassical economists use theoretically. And, you know, the reason for the pushback, by at least some, uh, Krugman, for example, is that obviously if you look at the post-Keynesians, the post-Keynesians say everything that Paul Krugman has written is wrong, well, he's not going to be happy with it. You can't gloss that over. I mean, so obviously there's going to be resistance. And in his case, I mean, look, he's deliberately misrepresenting. He's saying things are not in there as a way of minimizing the theory. Just say, look, they say deficits don't matter. You know, he, he just makes stuff up and attacks that. 
and he figures you know, he has a huge following, and he just feels he can get away with that. And you know, people are getting the Krugman definition MMT, so they get a distorted view. I mean, it's a strategy, but I don't see how that makes sense in the world of the internet. I mean, there's people like me, and there's also neoclassicals. Not everyone in the mainstream, so it's not a huge group thing. I mean, they can all say, hey, that's crazy. You know, and there's some people say, hey, you know, these are just obvious mischaracterizations. So it's not clear that that strategy would work. You know, so that's basically how I would view what's going on. I mean, it's the simplest way. Just listen, make it go away by pretending it's something and not make it look bad so that nobody's interested. But, you know, it's the thing is that you can only live off misrepresenting something completely so far before, you know, the truth catches up to you. Well, you know, as somebody who's been following this for about 10 years, I'm not the theoretician that you are, but I'm beyond riveted by the implications of what an understanding of macroeconomics. I love what Bill Mitchell has done with his new textbook, and they didn't call it MMT. They called it macroeconomics because it is the only coherent macroeconomic strategy end-to-end that really involves both the legal aspects of what is a debt and understanding the historical context of money creation and, and the relationship with the state. And then on top of it, integrating those things that you did talk about from post-Keynesian economics. But I would also add in and get your take on this. You know, I know Bill Mitchell comes from the Koleski School of you know, Economics. He, he found his origins largely in Michael Koleski. And that was where full employment really came from in his mind. And I know there's some push over there from the Minsky side and uh, you know, obviously functional finance with Abba Lerner. Um, and then, of course, you know, Lord Keynes himself. Can you kind of talk about maybe your perspective in, you know, you've been doing this a long time too. I've read your stuff for a long time. Obviously, you've experienced the ebbs and flows of the focus points on MMT. It seems like this Green New Deal stuff and the global perspective coming from Australia and then you obviously in the US and the UK with the Gims Institute, there's a whole new flavor here that's kicking in. And it's bringing out the same, you know, cat calls. I mean, Krugman's been at this before. This isn't his first trip down beat up MMT lane. Yeah, he's repeated the same tactic he did last time, you know, misrepresenting budgets don't matter. Exactly. So what is your take? Koleski is considered a fair economist to quote. You figure Minsky is a fair economist to quote. You figure Abel Lerner is a fair economist to quote. All these economists that we generate some of the backdrop for, not all of it, because MMT has its own revelations and its own epiphanies that come from its you know, further learnings. But when you look over there at physics, for example, and Einstein, and then you've got you know our friend, the guy in the wheelchair just passed. Oh, uh, Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Yes, Stephen Hawking. So you've got Hawking and Einstein. And Einstein developed the theory of relativity, but what Hawking did was took Einstein's theory and put it on steroids. He developed further understandings that Einstein never had a clue he had unraveled. And so you think to yourself, maybe MMT has taken these initial understandings and taken them to new places or to logical conclusions. I don't know. But 
what is your take on that evolution from these economists that you know had these thoughts previously and the synthesis that MMT brings to the table? Yeah, I mean, like my sort of theoretical background, I came in from a Minsky viewpoint. I mean, he was the first economist that books that I could pick up and they say, this made sense. It matched what I saw in the markets because I came in, you know, working with data, you know, what's happening in the bond market. Like the finance textbooks are fine. I mean, that's where it's based off, like how you price things, which is, you know, I was a quantitative analyst, that part of it. Yeah. No complaints in finance. The issue was economics. You pick up an economics 101 text. I look at it and say, this doesn't resemble what I'm doing. Krugman loves ISLM model, but there's no time axis. I mean, okay, there's some new ISLM that has time, but the classic one he's referring to, there's no time axis. And look, I'm interested in time series analysis. What use is this model? I just ignore it. And so Minsky was well associated with markets. He studied the evolution of markets and how that impacts policy. And so that clicked. And, you know, for me, you know, MMT extends, you know, Minsky, while Ray was a student, but Minsky himself, he was just a restatement of Keynes using slightly more modernized language. The, the issue with Keynes is he died too young. And he was a brilliant writer, but is very hard to follow what he meant. I read the general theory on a train and I basically came up with my own, okay, this is what he really meant. And it may or may not match the thousand other takes on what Keynes really meant. But that's the thing is it wasn't a simple mathematical model. It was complex. And to a certain extent, the post-Keynesians have been sort of debating what Keynes really meant, and you come up with different interpretation. Like Kolesky was contemporary; he developed independently of Keynes, but it's similar. I mean, the uh, you know, in terms of if you did like a basic model, uh, if you're doing simple models, they're close enough. Uh, economists really like their models and make a big deal about small differences between the models. Whereas I'm, you know, coming in from the outside, you know, they look close enough that you're not too worried about the distinction. So obviously Kleski had different emphasis in his work, but uh, certainly on the political economy side. But from a theory side, you can say it's, uh, I would be very hard to say that the thrust of what they wanted to do were radically different. The problem that all of them had they didn't really have the, the proper mathematical framework. I mean, this is the problem the post-Keynesians had, and so did the you know the mainstream. Is the the mathematical modeling techniques they're using, you know, weren't very clean and it was clumsy. The neoclassicals went off with DS dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, which are complex, but they have their own problems. But they at least made a little bit more sense. They, they sort of was a logic to them. But the post-Keynesians have moved towards the stock flow consistent models. And I think you've got a cleaner modeling framework that you can start putting it all together and giving a cleaner story. 
So basically, I think it's taking the old writers and just taking what they wanted to do and then put it into a, you know, a cleaner system to say, aha, this is what they really meant. And see, for mathematics engineering, you do that all the time. If you have a theorem, you'll just say, oh, this is this guy's theorem, and you'll prove it using completely different notation, you know, a completely different proof. You don't care. You don't actually say, you just say, you, you give precedence, you say, you name it after him, but you're going to re-derive it as clean as possible, and you don't actually go back and look at what they wrote in their original paper. You just say, look, you just do it with modern terminology, and you don't worry about that. So to a certain extent, my complaint with the post-Keynesians is that they spend too much time digging through things and not just say, look, we'll just rewrite it. The mainstream, conversely, they do sort of bury the past, so they have a little bit of an advantage. I mean, they ignore everything the post-Keynesians say, they ignore everything they said in the 50s. It does mean that everything seems magically new, and they keep reinventing the wheel. But the thing is, is to a certain extent, they do have cleaner-looking textbooks. Right. Well, let's hope Bill Mitchell nails it out of the park. I got to see the draft a long time ago, and I didn't read it in its fullness because I just didn't have time. But as I went through it, it was really phenomenal. I don't know how the man puts so many words together. If you look at how much he blogs, and then you read the uh, Reclaiming the State book, which is just absolutely phenomenal, and then add in this textbook with Martin Watts and Randy Ray, just got to be scratching your head, but then again, they've been at this for almost a decade. <laughs> so, yes, <on> time. <laughs> yeah, I waited for that textbook, and see, <laughs> I didn't write much in the way of MMT primers because I was waiting for that textbook. Basically, I wanted someone to do a survey. It was easier for me to do a primer on post-Keynesian concepts because I had a textbook to work from. Because I'm not going to go through a hundred papers and try and do my own survey paper. I, I don't have that kind of time. I want to be selective and I want to rely on someone else to do the survey because I don't want to be in a position to say MMT says this and then get smacked down by someone saying, no, actually that's wrong. So I've generally avoided saying MMT says X and I've been waiting for this textbook. And unfortunately for me, I've waited, you know, this textbook has been relatively slow. I could have worked with other ones or other books, but they're more advanced, and that's where I'm assuming my audience is. And so that content was more in this new textbook. Gotcha. So, all right, so I want to take a step back for a minute. Obviously, you write the blog Bond Economics, and your focus is largely on the bond markets and so forth. Explain to the audience, if you will, MMT says bonds are irrelevant, that we don't need them, that we could go with zero interest rate policy forever. Mosler's come out and said it. Kelton has said it. I think pretty much every MMT theorist has said that bonds are a relic of yesteryear, but they're a safe investment. Retirement accounts have them. Uh, and then, of course, you see the wealthy buying these treasuries, and, and they serve as somewhat of a basic income, a secure investment so forth. What is the role of bonds to actually finance a government, which, uh, you know, I know from an MMT perspective, we would say they don't, they can't, it's impossible. But what is the role of bonds to a 
functioning economy? What is the upside? What is the downside? And what is their role in the macro world? Well, the MMT argument, which really clicked, is that bonds are there to keep interest rates from going to zero. But that's basically it. If you didn't issue bonds and you know you don't default, you just say, let's have a government and we don't issue bonds, everything would be base money, you know, reserves, reserves and banks and most likely. And if they don't pay interest on those reserves, interest rate goes to zero. However, governments want to use interest rates to regulate the economy. But it's not just the overnight rate. They need the whole yield curve. And so they issue bonds to push up yields across the curve. And in Canada, for example, most of the mortgages, or almost all, are sort of a five-year term. And maybe that shifted slightly. But basically, you're five-year fixed. And after that, you renegotiate the interest rate. And so to regulate the mortgage market, you need a five-year government bond pushing up the yield on five-year mortgages. Because otherwise, if there wasn't a five-year government bond, if it was all zero, those mortgages, because the risk is being backstopped by the taxpayer, they would be trading around 0%. So there's no way of slowing down the housing market, for example. And so that's it. That's really why they're there from a macro stabilization point of view. It's just a way of, hey, we want interest rates to be non-zero. I mean, some MMTers, okay, they say, no, maybe we shouldn't be using interest rates to regulate the economy and so we can get rid of bonds. If that happens, well, I guess I'll need a new domain name. I always joke about that. But, <laughs> you know, if it's only one country, I can target the other countries. But it's a debate whether, you know, you need non-zero interest rates. The issue that I've seen and the MMTers are aware of this, is that our policy, I mean, since the 1980s, we pushed everyone into self-directed retirement plans of various sorts. I mean, it might be direct contribution. You don't have a defined benefit pension. I mean, the, the very, very few of those left, they're just legacy funds. So people are managing their own retirement. And we have a huge group of people who are on the edge of retirement. Well, they need risk-free assets to you know, fund their retirement expenses. And that's it. So, I mean, this is a policy framework that's been in place for decades. And the problem with locking interest rates at zero, if inflation is positive, you're saying, hey, you're locked in at a negative real rate, have fun eating cat food. And that's the issue is that you have this huge wave of retirement money sitting there and people were pushed these things. So you need to think about, okay, how do we compensate for that? So that's a big issue. I believe the MMTers have discussed this, but it's not a completely cost-free. If, if you were back in 1950, maybe it'd be different when you had a younger population. But right now, when you know, a good portion of the population are on retired or on the verge of retirement, it's not a minor issue that you can just sort of weave away. Crap, 
You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. So I think one of the things that comes to mind about bonds, as a person that lives near the Pennsylvania state capital, I know that you're in Canada. I'm not sure the relationship here, but I imagine currency issuer, currency user, kind of the same wherever you go. But in the United States here, Pennsylvania has been largely struggling with a major budget deficit as a currency user in this currency issue, currency user relationship. And the state of Pennsylvania, in particular, the city of Harrisburg, where the capital is, it's a rundown city. It's an old city that the primary employers are the state, a couple healthcare facilities, some pseudo non-government offices like Pennsylvania Higher Education, which manages the student debt. There's not very many employers. Basically, the city was in bankruptcy. And you, you think to yourself, what are the ways that these states and local municipalities and cities are able to manage during downturns? And this is where I've seen a role of bonds. I'd like to see, you know, block grants. I'd like to see the states rid themselves of unfunded mandates and force that onto the currency issuer. But is this not a role of bonds as well? I know we talked about retirement, but states have to have a balanced budget. Only one state in the entire country have a balanced budget amendment because states themselves cannot generate their own currency, at least U.S. dollar currency. Is that another role of bonds in terms of financing yeah. state and local government? Yeah, that was the problem with my book. I said, understanding government finance, because I wanted a snappier title. But there's a big gulf between a central government, like the U.S. Treasury, and a state and local. The Canadian system is a bit unusual internationally, because what we have, courtesy of the way the Constitution works, is that most of the welfare state is actually implemented at the provincial level. And so we have big provincial governments. I mean, they have big bond issuing programs. They're very sophisticated issuers, and there's no such thing as a balanced budget amendment. They have big deficits. They, in a sense, you know, they're big and comparable to a lot of central governments out there. But they are currency users, and they're subject to default. There was one default in modern Canadian history, and that was Alberta but during the Depression. Otherwise, they're very big. The question is, will the central government bail them out? There's a moral hazard issue. But whereas in the United States, they're much smaller. They're limited in scope, and they do default. Because like the Canadian cities, there was a default, I think, in the 50s. 
But basically, the provincial governments have a lot more control over municipalities in Canada. In the United States, the municipalities are much stronger constitutionally, and they can get themselves in more trouble. In Canada, the provinces act like the grown-ups in the room, and they force the cities to stay in line. So to a certain extent, the management is much more professional because it's more centralized. But yes, I mean, that has to be done through bond issuance. They can't issue money. And so, yeah, the provincial bond market is a big, it's a big thing for retirees. But then you have the corporate sector also has to issue bonds. So even if the central government gets rid of its bond issuance, the bond market will still exist. Right. So looking at, again, I hate to make this so U.S.-centric, but it begs the question because we are so screwed here in the U.S. In Flint, Michigan, up there, right near the Canadian border, you've got pipes that have completely rusted out. The water is undrinkable. It's practically poison. Obviously, the capital flight, if you will, because we haven't used our sovereign fiat currency to offset capital flight, has left Detroit and that whole area a waste town, like a third world nation that has been bombed by, like Hiroshima, it looks like, if you go into some of the worst sections of it. And you go down there to Puerto Rico, another U.S. territory, ravaged by a hurricane and still not fully back on its feet. These groups have had bonds and so forth, but the vultures have come through, picked apart their history, picked apart their art, picked apart their pieces, just like any other Wall Street story. Going back to Gordon Gecko peeling apart the airline, this is happening all over the place. And it's completely about the race to the bottom. You look at Kansas, for example, where they literally eliminated taxes altogether, practically, and let all the services in the entire community dry up. And now they're really, really suffering for that. You can see the businesses flee these high tax areas in the U.S., and they go to the low tax sweetheart area. You see it with Amazon recently. Uh, Washington, D.C., and New York City booted them out, basically. But all across the U.S., you can see this, um, dare I say, sectoral balances approach to non-sovereign entities, where you can see the groups that have the business are thriving, and the groups that don't have the business are left with you know, destitution and urban blight. This is another key area that I feel MMT has a really strong voice for, but it hasn't used it. But I think this plays into the role of bonds. I think it plays into the role of fiscal policy at the federal level. And I think it definitely marries into the concept of currency user, currency issuer to explain the concepts that are going on in these impoverished states. What is your take on Puerto Rico and Flint, Michigan, and so forth? Because these, in my opinion, are the keys right now to understanding. This is an opportunity to show you know, the difference between Greece and, you know, the U.S. or or whatever, this is a really big deal. But what is your theoretical take? No, I mean, this is where I have to plead ignorance. See, something like the situation you describe, it's very difficult to imagine happening in Canada outside of, you could point to the situation on reserves. But there's 
10 provinces. They're relatively large. Something like Flint, the provincial government, because there's areas around Detroit, I believe, that are doing well. Basically, people flee the inner city and they move to burbs. There was a little bit of an effect like that in Canada. But the thing is, is that provincial level doesn't allow that flight to the burbs to get too far. Things are more homogenized. And the other thing is, is Canadians are fairly ornery politically. What you see at the provincial level is new parties pop up routinely and they wipe out governing parties. It's very typical for a party to be in government problems for 20 straight years, go into an election, and lose every single seat. Basically, they'll completely wipe out incompetent governments. And a new party springs up, and they can swing left, they can swing right. And so, basically, things here aren't allowed to get that far in most cases. I mean, there's areas of poverty, yes. but very big ones, you know, that affect big cities, not really. So it's a very different political environment. And I don't understand the American system. I think the difference is that the American municipalities are much stronger constitutionally. And so the fixes for coordination have to be done at a higher level of government. And they don't have that authority. And I'm not going to tell people, you got to change your constitution. But that's sort of the subtext. I mean, the federal government could fix these issues. The question is, do they have a legal right? And I am not the person to ask on that. That's, <laughs> that's very simply it. Yeah. In the U.S., they've got the battle. And this goes back to the Civil War and before the Tenth Amendment, which is states' rights, basically, and then the Fourteenth Amendment, which is the equal protection. And that battle went on. We got to see it in spades during the ACA battle when the American Affordable Care Act was passed. The idea here is if I take away these legal aspects and differences between Canada and the U.S. at a more generic level, if you will, you do have a hesitancy of the government to take care of these issues and more of a push to markets, which would be neoliberalism at its finest, to settle these problems. And obviously, as neoliberalism dictates, they're looking for a profit motive. So they walk into the disaster-torn Puerto Rico and find ways to profit from their disaster. And they go up to Flint, Michigan, find ways to profit on the poverty of the disaster. And this is a moralization to some extent in the sense of, should we allow this pain and suffering? But when you think about what economics is as a whole, economics is about efficiency. And, you know, MMT talks about full employment being the pinnacle of an efficient economy, at least in terms of, you know, that should be the base. It should be the starting point. And you look at these areas and they're ravaged. So it's obvious from an MMT perspective that they're not being very efficient. They're not being very inclusive. They're not achieving what they could achieve in terms of a full employment economy, and by extension, only the few prosper, and that's the vultures coming in to pick it apart. They would consider that part of the business cycle, you know, but 
from a standpoint of currency issuers and currency users, you would expect, or at least I would expect within the United States, that we would take an interest in how we can fix these problems. And I believe that MMT provides a lens from which to take different actions that are being taken today to address these very serious concerns. That's me on my soapbox. But I believe there's merit there. Yeah, basically, though, if, if you're, say, a sub-sovereign, you never want bondholders dictating what you have to do. It's a pretty good rule of thumb. If the bondholders are dictating what you're doing, whether you're a business, you're not in a good position. You want freedom of action. And you know you can only do that basically by being a good credit. If you're a good credit, it's not really your problem. Or you could be a really big borrower and then take down the system, in which case you push around creditors. But that's the thing is that it comes down to the government. They have no choice. A sub-sovereign, you know, they're like a corporation. They have to follow the rules that everyone else has to follow. And it's their policy decisions. And really the only natural way to break that, yes, the central government can go in and fix things and take more of a load. But there is the question of, say, moral hazard. If the central government pays for everything, you know, what's to stop you know, local politicians from building, yeah, no giant baseball stadiums named after themselves, etc. If you say you're picking up all the bills, well, where's the discipline? So, to a certain extent, it's a political discipline, and the markets show up. But it depends where you draw the line. What level of government does what, and you know, each country is different on that front. Okay, so. Let me ask you this in kind of like in a wrap up here. We've talked a little bit about the bond role at the local and state and municipal and provincial level. We've talked about it at the macro level. And we've talked about the criticisms of some of these individuals that have recently waded into the debate about MMT and its place for a, you know, we didn't say it, but let's be fair. It's largely focused on this concept of a Green New Deal. How would you assess, and this is kind of like my bow tie here, how would you assess the fiscal space available to a sovereign issuing nation, wherever it be, UK, Russia, China, Australia, Canada, US, how would you assess the fiscal elasticity or the space available? People oftentimes talk about the real resources being the constraint. And that's a bit nebulous. It's hard to wrap your eyes and ears and mind around. But what would be a good indicator that we've hit our wall, that we're at max capacity, that there's no more fiscal space to be had right now? How do you assess the amount of room we have to spend? I generally look at the post-1990 data set, because that's when things changed. As Bill Mitchell described, that's when the reforms hit the labor market. We've had this low inflation regime. In that entire era, no one has come close to hitting fiscal limits. It's the reality. There were big deficits in the financial crisis, but that was just the automatic stabilizers. I mean, with the collapse in activity, you know, the stimulus packages were just nothing compared to the drawdown. And 
they could have thrown way more at the economy without hitting real capacity limits during the worst of the crisis. So the issue, if you want to do it technically, we don't have a really good data set. It's all being little nudges here, little nudges there. And we're stuck looking at, okay, is the unemployment rate really low? Blah, blah, blah. And MMTers, the ACTM have done a lot of work on this. I mean, I've done, I'm not going to say I'm an expert in what they've done, but, you know, I've looked at this as part of my day job. And ultimately, what tells you you've made a mistake is inflation. That's when you're running out of resources. But if you're doing something big like the Green New Deal, see, that's very much a real resource issue. Like if you're doing a tax cut, you're not really changing the shape of the economy. Like if you look at, say, the Trump tax cut, you weren't doing a radical restructuring the economy. You're just reducing the tax rate. People can spend more. And so, you know, the traditional analysis, conventional analysis, hey, let's look at the output gap, wherever it is, unemployment rate. Is there an inflation risk? And you could assess that fairly easily because you weren't changing things. If you look at the Green New Deal, you want to eliminate carbon usage. That is a big change, and you could argue as big a change as what was going on in World War II. You're simultaneously building a renewable sector and destroying the carbon-using sectors. And destroying is the word. I mean, you're wiping out a segment of the economy. If your objective is to meet the Green New Deal objectives to eliminate carbon usage, that's a big change. And for that, you actually have to look at the engineering of it. I mean, that's not an easy thing. I'm sort of in the peak oil camp and, you know, with a concern about the trends in energy production. It's not an easy thing to do, but you have to figure out, is this possible from an engineering perspective? And you don't care what the dollar amounts are. You're just looking, can we make this shift? Is there enough renewable energy? And then you can say, well, how do we get rid of this carbon usage? What do we do? Do we just do a carbon tax and wipe them out? And then once you know how you're actually implementing this, and right now the proposal is just a proposal to look at it, you've got to say, what are we trying to do? And then once you've figured that out, you can have to say, well, what are the inflationary implications? And that's big because you're going to be hitting some sectors with a lot of activity. It's not like just tax cut going out to everyone or everyone who's rich. It's you're giving a lot of money to some sectors and it's going to be very hard. We'll find out the hard way. If the policy is implemented, I mean, you can go in with plans, but I think the philosopher Mike Tyson said, everyone has a a plan until they're punched in the face. I mean, (laughs) the... It's going to be what happens. What do you think is going to happen when you do these huge engineering gen? And they're huge. My feeling is, is that if you're going to do it, you're probably doing a carbon tax and that's it. You do a carbon tax to get rid of the carbon users and you spend on it. And from a back of the envelope point of view, I wouldn't be shocked if they were very similar magnitude. I mean, but you'd have to see the numbers. You have to see what are we doing? How big is this program? If the program is planting a few hundred trees, well, obviously it's not a big deal. But you know, you got to know what you're doing, and then you have to look at that, and you have to look at the size of what you're doing relative to the economy. 
And see, there's been nothing attempted like that. In the era that I've looked at, there's nothing like it. You have to go back to World War II. That would be the only thing that's comparable to the scope of the Green New Deal because it's a restructuring of the economy. I spoke with Warren Mosler a little while back, and Warren made some very astute points, points that I don't have the wherewithal to refute, not that I would, but he made some comments. He said, you know, getting the mobilization for a Green New Deal is going to put us up to and maybe even beyond full employment. And he talked about having to raid the fire sector for labor. And we even addressed the fact that it may even require immigrants who have been chastised and beaten down over the years here in the States to even fulfill many of these roles. And the idea of actually getting to full employment is not out of the question. This is like a legitimate, wow, do we have any slack in the employment ranks at all? Um, Because to do this is going to take a full, like you said, you know, World War II level mobilization. Then he said something very interesting that I wanted to get your technical perspective. We were talking, obviously, you know, Medicare for all or universal health care is a very important thing that we're talking about as well. And it's not necessarily part of a Green New Deal, but it is part of this larger FDR Second Bill of Rights kind of push that's going along in parallel with this. And he said something profound. And he said, Medicare for all looks to have a deflationary bias to it. And he said, and it may actually require a tax cut. And we started talking about the real resources of, you know, do you have enough doctors? Do you have enough phlebotomists? Do you have enough surgeons and so forth? Can you talk about what this whole concept of deflation is and what it might mean to an economy as you're trying to make macro adjustments? I mean, well, that's another one. And that's interesting. I think you're going to have to divide the short run from the long run. I mean, it depends, like for the Medicare for all. So we have basically a single payer here. It was implemented in the 1950s when the medical sector was much smaller. And so I'm not sure if there's any parallels you can draw. But the real resources in the form of doctors and nurses hospitals largely exist. The question is, you know, okay, uh, to what extent they're under your government control? So in Canada, hospitals are government run. There are private clinics, like there's some private elements to the system, but they can directly control costs of what doctors and nurses get paid. With the US system, I don't know how that would work. But if we put that question aside, The other thing is, while the insurance industry, it's no longer really needed. If you went to a Canadian system, there are healthcare plans, but they're very minor. They're very incidental. Like, for example, if you want to get a blood test, you can either stand in line and wait at 7 a.m. for your blood test outside in December because everyone shows up at the same time and because you fast overnight. Or you can go to a private clinic and pay 15 bucks for the blood test. And the insurance will cover that. But there's basically not a huge role for health insurance. So, well, that's an industry that basically disappears off the face of the earth. That's a deflationary shock in the short term. 
But in the long term, people or corporations are no longer paying those healthcare premiums. Those healthcare premiums are effectively a tax. You can think of them as a tax uh, going to the health insurance, paying for it. So that is like a tax cut. So in the long run, I think, yes, eventually, once you get the deflation shock out of the way, all else equal, taxes would probably go up. But it's probably less because if costs are controlled, it would be less than what you, you know, the reduction in premiums. But, you know, that's the thing is that in the real world, you know, taxes should set at a macro basis. So it's very hard to say this tax is paying this. That's the thing about the pay for. The MMT is you yes. want to get away from that thinking. Yes. But realistically, I mean, it's not a free lunch. The healthcare in the steady state, you know, you're going to be spending money on it, which you weren't spending on before, presumably. This thing, I mean, it may be the tax, maybe there's the deductibles or something like that that are come in like a payroll tax. And that depends on the program. But there would be a short versus a long-term perspective. So, Brian, I want to thank you very much for spending this hour with us. This was amazing. I hope you'll come back and join us again. I Sure. I absolutely love hearing you talk. Man, this is just uh love to dive into Canada as well. We have a following out there. It would be great to be able to provide some good content as we address the Canadian economy as well. Mm-hmm. To be honest, though, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of economy following. That's a full-time job, and I'm more on the primer side. But unfortunately, I don't have as big a Canadian following, so I tend to write more about U.S. data. But I can take a look at the Canadian uh, situation again. But I found the page views for Canadian content for me was much lower. So <laughs> I said, oh, okay, let's talk about the U.S. labor market again. Demand. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, man. Well, look, thank you very much. We're going to go ahead and end the show, folks. Thank you. We have Brian Romanchuk with us today. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you.